welcome to another of our mini episodes with me, Kate Price McCarthy. Our guest this time is Helen Fields, whose new book, The Shadow Man, came out last month. If you've been riveted by TV shows like Mindhunter and Criminal Minds, which are focused on the world of FBI profiling, you'll be fascinated by this new crime novel set in Edinburgh. It follows the story of two outsiders, Connie Woolvine, who's an FBI profiler from the States, and the very English Detective Inspector Brodie Barder, a kidnapping specialist from London. In this interview, you'll hear Helen talking about the real-life FBI profiler who provided a vast amount of insight for this book, as well as the City of Edinburgh and its inspiration for writers. Helen also talks about the library she loved growing up near Romsey and the impact it had on her as a child. Here's Helen talking about the book. Thank you very much for joining me to talk about your latest book. Now, your new book, The The Shadow Man, it starts with this really intriguing prologue, which leaves the reader with kind of lots more questions than answers. Uh, Would you tell us a bit about how the story starts and then how it unfolds from there? The story starts and the prologue, in fact, takes place in a very small uh, graveyard, which is a real graveyard that exists just outside the city limits of Edinburgh. Um, It's an ancient graveyard, actually. It's not really used for current burials, and it it dates back hundreds of years. And you see a man uh, who is described as coming and going, and he reuses the same grave. Uh, Sometimes he's burying bodies, and sometimes he's digging them up, but always in the same grave and reusing the same coffin. And that's where we start off. And then as we go into the main body of the book, you see him in the bedroom of a young mother who is just going to sleep. And he's standing a shrouded behind her curtains, watching her, waiting for her to fall asleep before he can attempt to kidnap her. And things from there go horribly wrong. And that's at the point where I think the entire book just goes down a hill <laughs> from there and things get scarier and, and um, nastier. It's definitely a story for those that like a kind of walk on the rather dark, sinister side. So not one if maybe you're on your own in the house very late at night. Now, the story focuses on uh, Connie Woolvine, who's a forensic psychologist. I'd love to hear a bit about the inspiration behind that character, because I understand it's quite kind of personal inspiration to you. Yes, it is. I was living, we've been living in America for the last three years. We only came back this summer. So uh, I was living in California. And while I was there, I got to know a range of really, truly fascinating people. An incredibly good friend of mine from England, from Hampshire, which is where I've lived really most of my life, um, said, you know, just while you're living in America, literally the whole of America, I was at university with a guy I didn't know that well, uh, but I'm on Facebook with him. And they spoke and he went, oh, I'm in California. She came over to visit me and we were going for a barbecue. And it turned out that the whole of the United States, he lived less than a mile from me. Um, We became great, great friends and we are still our great friends. His wife is a lawyer. Uh, Her twin sister um, works with the FBI and her best friend is a profiler um, with the behavioral unit in the FBI. She's a supervisory special agent who did an amazing job. We got in touch, went through all the right, you know, security at the FBI. And she ended up working this case for me as if it was a real case. And she's done some quite high profile cases. 
She was amazing. Uh, Molly took all my case notes. I hadn't written the book yet. So I sent her lots of random stuff about the antagonist psychological syndrome, which is called Cotard syndrome, also known as walking corpse syndrome, which gives you some idea just how weird and spooky this is. He believes he's dead. What that means is that his psychological syndrome put him outside of the normal parameters of profiling. Uh, and I sent her all my case notes. So for all the people who disappeared and the dead body that's found, she worked through the entire case for me as if she were working it properly and profiling it. And then she took me through every process, every bit of jargon from start to finish. And she said, this is where I'd get stuck. This would be the first good clue. This would is what I would do. I'd work with the medics. So actually what you see in the book is as close to absolutely real as, as the profiling would have been. I think everyone has become really interested by the work that these profilers do in uh, things like Mindhunter on Netflix. It's Yes, I'm a huge fan. Me too. That artistry of profiling, the science of profiling, is absolutely fascinating. There's one really fascinating scene where Connie interviews a schoolgirl witness called Melanie Chow. And I was really intrigued by this really careful process that Connie goes through to prompt the young girl's memories using emotions as a trigger. Could you tell me a bit more about that, that kind of process of using memories and emotions like that? They always say, if you want, if you want the proof of the pudding in this, actually, think of a, a memory from your childhood where you felt badly treated or wrongly treated, where you felt somebody, uh, it's something like somebody accused you of lying and you weren't lying, or somebody says, no, you took my, you took my pencil and you didn't take it. And when you're a child, all of your strong memories are formed around incredibly strong emotions. And they could be that sense of injustice. It can be humiliation. I don't think any of us has ever been humiliated in our lives where we can't remember where we were, kind of who was there, exactly the words we said. So anytime there's a wrong, really strong memory formed, it is always a moment where there are high emotions. Um, and actually that's how our brain filters out the stuff that we don't need because the moments when we don't have strong emotions attached to it, your memory says, you don't really need that one. That's normal everyday stuff. You can let it go. Uh, and we filter in that way. Um, and I translated all of that, what I learned and thought about through research into how you would go about getting a really good picture memory moment for moment from a child. Um, and of course, children also respond better to emotional stimuli than they do talking things through in an intellectual way. Um, and it seemed to me um, to be the right way to, to go about that scene. Uh, now, I was really loved the fact that you're, you've chosen Edinburgh as a setting for this story, which is a place that, that you've returned to before for, for somewhere to set this sort of dark mystery. It's a delight for me because it's one of my favourite cities and it is clearly the perfect setting for a dark and gruesome mystery. And from what you're saying about using the, the real cemetery, you, you obviously get inspired by the locations and places within the city. So what is it about the place that makes it such a good choice for you as a setting? Edinburgh has a sense of age to it anyway. It's an incredibly well-protected city in terms of its architecture and its layout. The uh, you know town council has been incredibly careful about making sure that any improvements within the kind of you know centre of the city are very sympathetic um, to the city. And so when you go there, you do get a sense of passing time. And it actually doesn't matter how full of tourists it is, what's on, you know, what's going on. You can walk down any tiny street, you can take a back alley, you can go anywhere, and you get a sense of history every single second. I spend most of my time walking around Edinburgh with my phone, just taking photos. 
And I do have a rule that I don't write about anywhere I haven't been to. So even when it's one particular little street that seems irrelevant, a little passageway, whatever, I have to have been there if I humanly can. The only time I've broken that rule is writing in the last year when I haven't been able to travel. But I have a kind of, you know, this calendar in my head. And the second I'm allowed on a plane again, I will be going to check out what I've written and make sure it's authentic. Um, because you can't fool people who know places, you know, you get told when you get it wrong. So Edinburgh has that sense of Gothic to me. It's very unfair. It's one of the safest cities in the world. <laughs> but it is that place where you can just imagine the darkness of it and the dark streets and the years passing by with actually relatively little effect. So for me, it's just somewhere that sparks my imagination. It's somewhere that I can allow myself to run free now. I haven't lived in Edinburgh, I haven't lived in Scotland. I think that's part of why it works for me. The places where I have lived and I know really well, so the South Coast and London and the East Coast of England, that sort of thing, don't hold that mystery for me anymore. And they don't have, the magic has been let go a little bit. It's not that I don't love them. It's just that they don't maybe spark my imagination in the same way. And that's why I keep going back to Edinburgh. In fact, my next book, I'm halfway through the editing process with my editor, um, Harper Collins, is set on the Isle of Mull. So I've taken, stayed in Scotland, but taken a little bit of a trip on that one. But uh, you do have to write in places that get you fired up, I think. Otherwise, the, the reader doesn't feel that sense of magic from you. This is your first standalone contemporary novel, and it follows your very successful series featuring D.I. Luke Kalanach, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. You are. Uh, now, this is one of the real pleasures of presenting this library podcast series is it introduces me to writers I haven't yet heard of. And I'm going to love going through your back catalogue, starting with Perfect Remains, which is the first of that series. Now, is there any way that the, the characters in The Shadow Man intersect with the universe you've created with Luke Kalanach? Uh, there is. I think there are three characters who managed to cross over between the the series and, and the um, standalone. And there are two good reasons for doing that. First of all, I had a chief pathologist from Edinburgh and I did feel that it made no sense for me to have a different chief pathologist than the one I'd been writing about for the last four years. It seemed ridiculous. So I carried her across, but she's Elsa Lambert and she's this tiny bird-like, but incredibly fierce with a kind of softer inside. Uh, she's a great character anyway. And there was no point me creating a new character when I have one I loved and who would work. There's also a detective superintendent who is absolutely appalling human being who features very heavily in the Kalanak books, um, who is perhaps my, I always say about her, she's a terrible human. She says the most awful things and she is brutal to the point of deliberate cruelty. And if the Kalanak series ever gets made into a TV series, I want to play her. She's <laughs> horrible and hilarious and she gets all the best lines. I was able to carry her over again. I needed a detective superintendent. There was no point making a new one up. And a poor police officer, female police officer, who always bumbles in and gets things wrong and, and speaks the wrong moment. And I stole her as well. Uh, that, now, that was partly just it made sense to me in the same city to carry those people through. Um, but also because I'm very aware I'm taking a break from a series where I get contacts absolutely daily from people saying, it's lovely that you've got a new book out, but when are Luke and Ava coming back? which is hugely flattering and kind. You know, we're very lucky as writers when we get readers who actually care about the characters we create. And I wanted to give them something in, in the standalone that still felt familiar. It's a nice thing. I love books where I can pick up a, what looks like a totally different book and you feel like 
it's something that's been written just for you, secretly just for you when an author manages to drop something in there that's a reference to another book. I, I love the experience of those moments and I wanted to be able to do that. It makes you feel the characters you've grown to love are really real, are still out there existing, even when you're not hearing about them. And I was interested that Connie comes from the States uh, and Luke, I understand because I haven't read the books yet, uh, he's come from Interpol, he's been living away. So both of them sort of come as outsiders into the, um, the world in Edinburgh. Is that something about being an outsider coming into this, uh, this established atmosphere that you, you think works well in the book? I think so. When I wrote Luke Kanach, who was actually um, was born in Scotland, but taken by his French mother back to France very young when his father dies and has lived his whole life in France. So he speaks good enough English because that was encouraged by his mother. But when I was looking at wanting to write the book in Edinburgh, I wanted to create some conflict. That's what books work with. That's how characters thrive. And so I thought, well, what's the, what's the best person to drop into a very straight-talking city with police officers who take no notice and who, whose sense of humour is, uh, at best, fairly rough at times? And I thought, well, I'll put... So Luke is this very, very good-looking to the point that it slightly distorts his life. He gets too much attention. He's a former model. Um, this incredibly good-looking guy with this, you know, this French accent and he talks a bit like this. And, and so I dropped him into the middle of the Edinburgh police force, who, of course, were merciless with him and couldn't take him seriously and didn't really want him to be part of this team, this kind of, you know, poster boy, French accent, who looks like, a, looks like an actor. But the conflict that I got out of that, uh, together with an ongoing sense of him needing to prove himself and resolution and the problems with kind of, you know, women he meets and things was lovely. So when you bring in an outsider as a character, it allows you much more space and scope for them to have a bigger arc, character arc, and a bigger journey within a book. And yes, I did the same thing with Connie, partly because it made more sense because profiling has really originated from the States and it's something that's been perfected within the FBI. But also I wanted to pair her up with, she's paired up with Brodie Barder, who's an English, terribly English, old Etonian, very reserved kidnapping specialist. And they couldn't be more different, different. but the nice thing is actually they, as soon as I started writing things like their dialogue, their scenes together, they work really well together, um, but they couldn't be more different. Again, put, putting her into a, a place where people, immediately, the first thing they say when there's an American in, in somewhere else is, oh, you're American. And we have all sorts of assumptions about people from different countries and particularly Americans. And again, that gave me some scope, gave me something to work with. Your own background was in the law. Indeed, you were a barrister for many years in London, specialising in criminal and family law. Uh, I'm assuming this gives you an insight into the criminal minds you're writing about and also into the police processes. Is that is that the case? Yeah, it is the case. It made crime easier to write for me because I had a better understanding of, of the processes. Right from start to finish, I used to, as a criminal lawyer, I used to both prosecute and defend, as well as doing things like courts martials and coroner's courts and that sort of thing. So actually it gave me access over the years to lots of different experts, lots of different fields of study, and of course, lots of people. So I met endless amounts of, you know, police officers and uh, expert witnesses and worked with some, you know, obviously lots of quite dangerous, um, quite in some cases deranged people. I used to spend my time at prisons and uh, get also go into, you know, mental health units, things like that. So I had all the building blocks. It didn't 
didn't help with the writing, which is still a learning curve, but I had all the building blocks for writing crime itself. So that was very, very useful. And I have pulled characters out, you know, not, not cases, but I've definitely pulled characters out from over the years. And that's quite good fun because it's when, when it's people who really annoyed you, you get to, <laughs> you get to write them into your books under a different name. And just, um, it's quite cathartic. You get to write it out of your system. And the people that you've known and admired and you've seen this, you know, maybe just this one quality and that's changed your view of the world, you get to, you know, pay tribute to them in, a, in this tiny little way. I've got to know Connie and Barda as characters and I now want to know more about them. Are you going to do more books about these characters? Uh, at the moment, that's the million dollar question. I'm getting... I'm getting um, Increasing demands for the next Luke and Ava book, which is great. There will be another one of those. But I was absolutely taken aback. We've had a lot of reviews in already for um, The Shadow Man. And I've spoken to a lot of people. And I think that's the question I've been asked by about 90% of people. I wrote it as a standalone. I didn't think about it as anything other than a standalone. And then as I wrote Connie and as I wrote Barbara, it became obvious to me that the two of them had an ongoing relationship I left the ending open and I the more I looked into profiling the more I realized that there's a gap in the marketplace I don't I don't think there's a series at the moment that's really tackling profiling very prominently in crime fiction so there's definitely a space for it and I think there's the appetite for it I think it's it's quite an interesting thing and, and as you say it's very much of the moment Mindhunter has brought it back into the fall but yes I would very much like to revisit Connie she's got this thing she's an acromat she can only see in black and white she's got her own history where she was kept in a mental health unit for a year of her life and and that's what made her want to be a profiler so I think she's got a lot more about her. I think there's a lot more left to write. So I think the answer to that is yes, probably. Um, I'm also intrigued to know more about Barda and his, his family situation. Now, I understand you mentioned it briefly, but you've got a connection with Hampshire throughout all your life. And, and that I think you, you lived in Romsey as a child. Is that right? And if so, did you use the library? And, and what can you remember about it? I did. I actually, my, so both my parents were from Romsey and Hampshire and their families were from that area going way back. I went to Romsey Abbey Junior School, primary school and junior school. And I lived in Wellow actually when I was growing up, just a little village just outside on the edge of the New Forest. And I used to get on my bike at weekends. It was a four mile ride into Romsey and down a very steep bit of incredibly fast, dangerous dual carriageway in the years before any of us were wearing bike helmets. And we just didn't think about it. And I did that all the time. I did it almost every weekend. I would get my library card. I would cycle into Romsey. I'd have a couple of pounds with me to get myself a sandwich and a drink at lunchtime. And I would spend my day in the library. It's a beautiful old building. It kind of looks, if you imagine an old school, it looks a little bit like an old school. And it's basically got, it's got sort of three main rooms to it. That's about it. It's, it's, it's a library that was very much for community use and uh, it's a small place, but very friendly. So it was always a very accessible place. There wasn't too much of a sense of hush about it. And that's where I found Stephen King for the first time. I took every Stephen King book out as they came. It's where I, you know, and I used to wander around because the thing about spending time in a library is that if you spend enough hours there, you walk beyond the books that you normally want to pick up. And I remember 
finding this kind of, you know, self-reflection, a self-help kind of shelf. And I think at about 10, I read a book on meditation. I taught myself to meditate because I, and I wouldn't have considered it. I found the book just on a library shelf. And the beauty of libraries is that it gives you the time and space to um, find things that you wouldn't normally think about. Um, but yes, I spent a lot of my formative hours and days at Romsey Library, you know, from where I, when I was really old enough to get on a bike and just cycle away from home. And I was the youngest child. We actually didn't, my mum was a headmistress in Romsey, but my parents weren't people who read for pleasure. So we didn't have a lot of fiction books in our house. And I knew there was a kind of gap in me. And as, as early, as young as I could possibly do it, I was writing stories. And so the library was the only place I really had to um, develop that creativity. Romsey Library is still thriving. It is still, in fact, it, it is an old school building. It was originally a school building, which is why it's got that lovely atmosphere and it's still got the old school bell there as well. It's a lovely place. Finally, you've touched a little bit on, on what, what you're working on at the moment. Could you tell us a bit more about that? And, and yes, can we hope to see another in the Luke Kalanak series coming out soon? Yes, there, I mean, there definitely will be another Luke and Ava. Um, if I say anything other than that, I'm going to get emails straight away. But there will, because those characters have got a long way to go. The next book, which is a standalone, as I say, is set on the Isle of Mull. And that is about the death of a young girl from an American family, actually. And she they've lived there just for a few weeks. And this teenage girl dies and is found at the back of a cave it's one of the deepest caves in the UK. It goes back, 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 and it's has all sorts of superstition around it. All these places are real. And she is found with her mouth packed full of sand. And then there are more victims as we go through, and each of them is found with their mouth packed full of sand. And it's all about myths and superstitions, and particularly how they affect very small communities, particularly island communities. And the Isle of Mull has long had a tradition of uh, talking about is witches. The witches on Mull have, have been uh, part of the folklore there for a really long time. And so, yes, it's a little bit about talking about how girls get sucked into sometimes the wrong kind of thing. It's about how they sometimes get punished in terrible ways. And it's about folklore and witchcraft and what happens in a really small community when things go wrong. <laughs> 